0: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
2: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the x from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, x Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Welcome to the Connecting with Coincidence Radio Show with Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, bringing together the world's synchronicity experts to help you use meaningful coincidences to develop spiritually, psychologically, and practically. For more information, put Connecting with Coincidence into your web browser to find the book, website, Psychology Today blog, YouTube channel, and Facebook page. And now, here is the host of the Connecting with Coincidence Radio Show, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome to CC with BB. Yes, this is Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, with Connecting with Coincidence. Look up in the sky. There is a mystery of a coincidence up there. The sun and the moon are 93 million miles apart, yet appear to us on Earth to be the same size. Think of the solar eclipse. The moon passes in front of the sun, blocking the light, making daytime into night. The moon is just the right size at just the right distance to act as if it's the same size as the sun. What a coincidence. What? A coincidence? The moon and the sun have been major symbols for generations of human beings. Yin and yang, male and female. The coincidence of their same size could be a message to us. Balance our opposites. Pay attention to coincidences. We here are coinciders. We experience meaningful coincidences. We become insiders together, finding the symbols popping up all around us. We look through the lenses of synchronicity and serendipity and find guidance and connections that expand the filters of conventional reality. Our minds are immersed in a mental atmosphere, the psychosphere, through which we can be telepathic and sense the future We can also use the psychosphere to activate our human GPS, the ability to get where we need to be without a map. Sharpen your sensitivity to to coincidences. Examine their potential uses and explanations. Read my book, Connecting with Coincidence, and learn along with me, synchronicity spoken here. Our guest today is Pagan Kennedy. Pagan tells stories about cultural rebels humanitarian inventors, and scientific visionaries. Her 11 books include The First Man-Made Man, a study of the transgender pioneer Michael Dillon. Kennedy's journalism has appeared in in dozens of publications, including The New York Times, for which she is now a contributing editor in the opinions section. She is also co-producing a serial podcast for the Radiotopia Network. Pagan is the author of the forthcoming book, Inventology, How We Dream Up Things That Change the World. As a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT in 2010-11, Pagan studied microbiology and neuroengineering. She has won numerous other awards, including an NEA fellowship, a Smithsonian fellowship, and two Massachusetts Cultural Council Fellowships. Fagan, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. And just uh, one one correction, I, I'm actually, thank God I'm not an a editor at the New York Times because that would just be way too much work. I'm actually a contributing writer there. Yeah,
3: I, I skipped that one over, I really did. <laughs> yeah. A contributing writer for the old New York Times opinion section, yeah. thanks. Well, let's start off with a, a serendipity, synchronicity of yours.
4: Oh, uh, I'm, I, you know what? I'm not, uh, I'm not a believer that there's anything out there, um, yeah. that, that's outside of my head that is causing serendipity or synchronicity. I'm a firm believer that it's all happening inside my head, um, and our heads. And, um, But I think that that in itself is fascinating enough. Um, And I've been covering invention and ideas, sort of how people come up with ideas for a very long time um, as a journalist. And one of the most fascinating things to me is the whole realm of what we call accidental invention. Um, So I think that's probably the closest... um, kind of area to what you're you're interested in Um,
3: it's it's a matter of how you think about things happening and particularly the definition of chance which we'll we'll get back to but how did you get interested in writing about serendipity well
4: honestly i was well it actually started when i was asked by i was used to write for the new york times magazine and i did a column for them called who made that and every week, they would give me an object. Um, often it was not an object I picked, but one that would look like really nice in that picture. <laughs> in Because the, they had these gorgeous, huge photographs. And, um, and then I would have to go find the story behind it. Um, so that was like a graduate level education in how things get invented uh, that I was treated to and paid to do, which was just eye opening and amazing. So I talked week after week with people who had come up with these ideas that um, often these people themselves were not known, and it was often very hard to find them, um, but their products, or what they invented, was very were very well known, so um, like the thing you pick up the ball hopper that you pick up tennis balls with, that would be an object, or the... Um, the super soaker or the ice cream cone or, you know, and in some cases um, the people were long dead, but it was still really interesting to look into their stories. So I began to notice patterns in how there was like a certain point where I'd done like 30 maybe of these stories and talked to a lot of inventors. And I began to see, oh, there's, it it was very exciting because I was, sort of feeling, oh my God, maybe I'm seeing the secret sauce, you know, because there's a lot of methods that people seem to use to come up with these game-changing ideas. Um, but they, it wasn't one secret. It was definitely several different ones. And the way things that came into the world fit a number of different patterns. So one pattern, which is not as relevant to you, is that there are people whose job or life situation puts them in the way of a great idea and they know things. For instance, um, surgeons just make are, surgeons are incredibly inventive because they know things about surgery that nobody else knows and they know things about the problems, like things get, that go wrong in surgery and go wrong with the tools. So there's just things that they know about the problem that nobody else can know. So there's that privileged knowledge of the problem. Or people with, say, disabilities, they know way more about the problems with wheelchairs and things like that.
3: And this is one of the points that I think you bring out so clearly, that there are two ways that people come up with serendipities uh, in the way you think about it. One is a deep, uh, intimate relationship with the problem, as you're talking about. Not yeah. not somebody sitting on high thinking about it. It's some somebody who's got to deal with it right here, right now, and they come up with an answer because they need to.
4: Yeah, and I'm not sure you'd call that serendipity. Um, it's more like kind of a deep knowledge, deep hands-on knowledge, um, and that we often don't respect, you know, that kind of knowledge enough, I think.
3: Right, I agree the, with you. I agree with you. The
4: second um, kind, the second form of, There was actually four patterns, I noticed. I won't go into them all. But the second one I came across, uh, I was interviewing, actually, Lonnie Johnson, this fascinating inventor um, who came up with the Super Soaker. But he was a a very interesting guy. He's African-American. He faced all kinds of discrimination as a child. Uh, but it was a complete technical genius and ended up working at NASA as an engineer. And there was a day. And so he was telling me a story of this day in the eighties when he came home, it was on a, a weekend and he was working on a heat pump that used water and he was working on a nozzle that would really shoot water with a lot of power um into i don't know i don't know how you make heat pumps but
3: <laughs> well, what, what, what it what it came to be is that he stumbled across something that was a potential yeah. solution and this is one of the points you make so yeah. well is that he had a thing that he didn't know what to do with here was a potential thing that could be used and he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to use that nozzle and he ended up with the super soaker
4: well yeah and you know the what he what he told me about that moment. He had hooked up this nozzle in his bathroom, and there was a way that the water shot out of it. It with all this pa- power, and there was something toy-like and cartoony. And so it wasn't just that he saw something; he fell in love with it. And I think it's that love, um, and that's what kept him through the. You oh, know, yeah, 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 things, yeah. That's what,
3: kept, that's what kept yeah, him. Yeah, so it's kept that him. love. He had a lot. He had a lot to go through to make it happen, and I think uh, again, with both of those points you're you're making about a person close to the problem and here seeing a solution that he could fall in love with and try to make happen, the person uses that old that term, informed observation or sagacity mm-hmm. that the Walpole uh, used to to create serendipity.
4: Yeah, and so I think that you know, had he not been so passionate about it. He just would have gone about his day and continued to be a NASA engineer, which is fine. But you know, there was something, and there's often, you know, you talk to people, and it's almost like they feel like they found, you know, a million dollar bill on the street that nobody else has noticed they're like there's so much opportunity here why can't everybody else see that
3: why can't everybody else see it we're coming we're coming to the end of this segment and you're making a very important point that i hadn't thought of that emotional energy put into what the person sees you're listening to connecting with coincidence with your host dr bernie beitman md on the x-zone broadcast network and our guest is pagan kennedy
0: Welcome,
3: welcome back to CC with BB. I'm your host, Dr. Bernard Beitman, MD. We're talking with Pagan Kennedy about serendipity, and I think Pagan, you are broadening the definition of serendipity as I, as I have understood it, uh, especially with this um, investment in emotion and a lot and several other things. But how do you define serendipity?
4: So I um, define it. How do I define it? Well, I think because you and I were emailing, there's Several kinds of serendipity. Yes, yes.
0: Um,
4: But I would say that it's there's piece there's maybe a couple building there's a couple of pieces that are required in an accidental invention or a serendipitous um, event. And one is there has to be the trigger, which is you notice something in your environment that is very you know it's an opportunity that um, it's really interesting to you that that puts you onto something that other people haven't seen. Uh-huh. But so you have to have that accident. Um but you also need to have, as Walpole said, you have the kind of event and then you have the sagacity. Um but I think that um we tend to get a little too hung up sometimes on the event. Um, so much of it is being able to recognize. Yes, what it's yes, yes, yes,
3: yes. And,
4: you know, I am really fascinated in what might be called anti serendipity, which is where somebody sees the thing that they could have, a, like the million dollar idea, but they don't. Um, so, and a great example of that is I'm sure on your show you brought up Alexander Fleming. And oh, yeah. Well, yeah.
3: I have so. some more questions there too about him. Yeah. But, but, please, but but go through it because it's been a while since I brought it up.
4: Yeah, so actually, the story, you know, the very brief story is that Fleming was playing around with lab dishes, and um he noticed that when some penicillin, uh, you know, when this this fungus got into his lab dish, it killed the bacteria, it made these holes in it, like it was eating it away. And that, of course, suggested the idea that there could be this antibacterial medicine that could be, you know. And that that idea has transformed our world, and it's we're, you know, able to have surgery, modern surgery, and all the rest because of it.
3: Well, uh, let, 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 I want to come come back to what you're saying, but that's not the whole story with, from what I know of it. oh, okay, Because sure. Fleming really didn't know what he had found. He knew there was it's something he was looking for. He was looking for an antibiotic that, that would work rather than the sulfur drugs that weren't. Uh, so effective, but he presented it to a conference. He was kind of bland in presenting it. Nobody paid attention to it. Uh, it was then taken over to Oxford to be able to use, to clean uh, laboratory flasks to get bacteria out of the flask, and that's all they used it for, but some, somebody then figured out you could might, might try this out on guinea pigs instead of rats, and the guinea pig was a better choice because it would k- have killed the rats, or the other way around. But there were a lot of other, there were a lot yeah. of other steps in that. Maybe ten of them, ending with uh, Moldy Mary uh, in Peoria, Illinois, while the U.S. military was out there looking for penicillin fungus that could produce mass amounts, because you needed a strain that would do that. They were all over the world looking for it, and Moldy Mary, a lab assistant, was down at the farmer's market and saw a cantaloupe, a melon with this golden stuff on it and brought it in for the guys to look at. And this was the highest producing penicillin mold that they found around the world. That was a serendipitous event that capped a whole series of serendipity events. Uh, I I ask you about that because uh, that whole string is the most fascinating the most well, I, impressive serendipity string i've ever seen
4: right i mean i i'm sort of putting i yes you're right it's much more complicated than i presented and a lot of the problem was there was a whole string of things that had to happen to yes. make it something that you could create um in you know vast like buckets of you know just huge you could you could figuring out how to actually process it and make a lot of it affordably was another problem but Fleming was the person associated with just making the connection that there's something here
3: Yes, and and
4: the part I want to put a a spotlight on is that he did make that mental connection that nobody else had made before but before him there were people who had noticed the same thing Uh, they had noticed oh this Penicillin, you know, strain is seems to be killing bacteria. What of it? Big deal, you know. And there's even publications where they sort of notice that, but they don't see their significance. And and to be fair, Fleming himself didn't see the full significance. Of,
3: no, he didn't. He didn't. Of this, but now, he was what, what kind what of the
4: first step. You know what I mean? He,
3: so it's yeah,
4: the people before Fleming who didn't, didn't see it? Didn't see and in drug discovery, actually, the whole world of drug discovery is, and artificial sweeteners, yeah. is a world of serendipity, because there's all kinds of things that you can't logically figure
3: out, Um I, 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 this is re- really interesting how you're yeah. thinking about this, because you, you, you have been able to come up with the iconoclast, the people who see things other people don't see, see patterns that others don't see. But uh, what, what strikes me in what you're telling me about the anti-serendipity people who did not notice, but right. they did kind of notice and did write it up. They just weren't right next to Oxford, who somehow heard that, the, that Fleming had this stuff that could then clean out laboratory flasks. That was a link that is much more important now that you're telling me about the anti-serendipity guys, because Fleming could have been just like those other guys, unless the flask needed to be cleaned and they knew they could get it from Fleming. Well,
4: I would, I would argue that he saw use in it and was excited about it in a way that other people before him... You know, they may have mentioned it, but they didn't see anything in it. And so that's what interests me is that anti... Because I think that we are kind of probably often in an anti serendipity state where we're seeing something that could be of enormous value and we're just not realizing it
3: absolutely and it's one of this one of the points i've been trying to make about how much there is out there that can be useful to us i call them coincidences that we don't pay attention to it's not just about inventions it's about ideas it's about helping people With problems and with decision makings, making them aware of psychological things that they might not have been aware of. So I am trying to do something like what you're describing, which is become aware of the potentials around us.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, part of that is, yeah. And I, I'm not sure how you do that exactly. I mean, some (laughs) of the people who, um, you can find cases of this, the people who did notice, I, I I think it's really interesting to study the people who did notice versus the people who didn't. And like you say, some of them happen to be in the right place where they could actually have the power to make use of that revelation. But often they're very similar, um, you know, in their just being lab researchers who, you know, there just was some, and I actually think that it comes down a lot to this emotion, whether you get excited about it or not. Oh,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Emotion's uh, a big driver. Yes.
4: And I think that's also because I've interviewed so many inventors, and there's a real um, piece of their personality that is, they get very excited, and they're they're not driven, you know, as opposed to like you watch shark tank or something you get the idea that um first of all you know you're not going to make you know most people who come up with these major ideas that change the world they don't benefit from it yeah like i just want to say that you know yeah yeah it's true doing it because of the love because they want to change things or they're just excited about an idea and it's and it's sort of uh You know, there's a sort of um, paradoxical effect. Whereas, I think if you really are driven by the need to make, you know, to make a lot of money or to get results, you may not stop to notice some of these things.
3: Uh, There's 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 a somebody's law that says if if the the idea is named after someone, that person didn't invent it. Right. Right. It's And that's so clear what you're saying, Pagan. It's about that, that it's the love and c- drive curiosity that makes it happen. They just get caught up in what they're doing and thinks it's so wonderful. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, I can make a little bit of money on this here, honey. So they... C- Come along and make their own name for it. That's you've 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 described people as super encounterers. Um, yeah. seren- you've used the term serendipiter. I think you're just grabbing what a super encounterer is. Are there any other characteristics
4: yeah, besides? So, well, I should say that term super encounterer comes from a scholar named Sandra Sanda and um, she did these really interesting studies where she looked at how people um, do research. And she saw that there are different styles. And there are some people, and this really gets to serendipity versus anti-serendipity. There are some people who, you know, they have a research paper and they're like, I need to answer this question. So they just go, they march along and they do it. And they don't get distracted. They just, you know, figure out what they're going to do and they do it and they don't go on any side trips.
3: Well, let's then- let's let let's, let's st- We have to stop coming to the end oh. of this segment. We're talking about the, the single focused person who puts the blinders on to get the thing accomplished. That's one that's one subset that you're that you're talking about that Erdlitz was mentioning. You're you're listening to Connecting with Coincidence with your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman MD, on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And our guest is Pagan Kennedy. And we are talking heavy about serendipity.
2: After the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.future. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying... Thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for two fifty. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just two dollars. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Of God,
1: You have heard of the X Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV plus five hundred video games, live TV channels
3: Welcome, welcome back to CC with BB. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman, MD, and we're talking with Pagan Kennedy about serendipity. And we've just talked about one form of of what a scholar at University of Missouri uh, of calls serendipiters, and this is one subset of people who just keep going. They got the blinders on. They don't allow themselves to be distracted.
4: Yes, she actually calls these people um, non-encounterers. So
3: non-encounterers.
4: So she has three designations. One is non-encounterers. Then there's people in the middle, occasional encounters. And then there's super encounters. Okay. So if you're a non encounter you know, you have a paper to write. You go and research it. You write the paper. If you're a super encounterer, You go, you know, start looking up your topic and then along the way or you don't even have a topic. You just start uh, go to an old bookstore and start looking at, you know, pictures of cows in the 19th century and just start wandering around, kind of convinced that if you just kind of wander enough, you're going to find a great idea
3: well, i was wa- I was wandering around in the stacks of the library at Swarthmore College, a little bored looking for something I didn't know what, and ran across a book called um, "A Theory of Personality" by George Kelly. And the basic idea with, of that was expectation influences experience. And that idea has stayed with me because it's so fundamental to the way human beings operate. What we expect to happen has a lot to do with what we actually see happening. And that's what you're describing. But for this, this book had, a, had another impact on me. I was applying for a psychiatric residency at Stanford, and I walked in to talk to Fred Melgis. A, faculty member who was interviewing me, and he says, what do you know, pretty much, and I started talking about George Kelly. I I knew people who were psychoanalysts very well, but I didn't, and nobody had ever talked to me about George Kelly in medical school, but I started talking about George Kelly, and his eyes lit up, and he says, I'm following a lot of George Kelly's work in developing a future-oriented psychotherapy, and we talked about George Kelly, and that that interview, that link from a library wandering around looking for who knows what, and then I found it, helped me get into a residency at Stanford.
4: Yeah, and, you know, that example is a great one because you, as a, you know, you were, uh, you know, super encountering there. And that part, but part of that is that you clearly love to forage. You know, you have to also love it. And and the people who are super encounters so love just kind of forging for new ideas that they often, she noticed that they would often, you know, help, you know, would be the yentas who would set up friends with, you know, dates or they would, she would, you know. (laughs) They just love oh, that's, a, that's
3: a good one. I like these ones that are just out there in the real world, not just uh, regular, uh, like, inventing things, but the yentas that would come up. Yeah. Oh, no, you could, I see this This one fits with that one, and I'll try right. to put them together. What are some of the other examples like that out in the world, not in research? Well, well I
4: would like to say, I mean, I think what Sonda, when we talked, and, and she made me think about how, so you talked about how you had this faith, there's a kind of faith that if you follow your instincts and just forage you'll you'll happen upon um the right path and the right idea yes and so that's again it's a very emotional there's emotional as well as an intellectual piece it's a kind
3: of well well, you don't well, well you don't think the way i do about this i think we have a human gps capacity that allows us to get to that place we need to go driven by the emotion that you're talking about well, and
4: but I want to, you know, I want to kind of put a, a more a wrinkle in it because what I began to realize is you can go too far in the direction of super encountering. Yes. And I'm sure we all have done that and the internet is like
0: Oh a,
3: yeah.
4: a dangerous rabbit hole <laughs> of super encountering and anybody who's sort of went to look something up and 10 hours later, you know, <laughs> researched the history of spinning wheels or something without meaning to do it knows that there is a dark side to serendipity and super encountering and that we can definitely go too far in that direction and get too addicted to foraging.
3: And not so, not to just coming up with something that's useful for you.
4: Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very hard to know the difference, you know, because a lot of it is, you do have to have that open-ended, um, you know, up-for-anything attitude, but...
3: Isn't that where informed uh, informed observation comes in?
4: Yeah, I think it does, and uh, but I think it is also... I think the internet is, you know, in the way that we can all kind of fall down the Twitter hole does show that <laughs> you can get stuck in the foraging phase in a way that
3: yeah, yes.
4: might not be healthy sometimes.
3: Yes, agreed, agreed. So this, these super-encounterers uh, can get do a lot of foraging but the successful ones can observe uh within with information and then come up with something that they love as i did with this george kelly book i i, I kept reading that book um years afterwards just because coming back to it trying to understand it because i as you're describing it emotionally i knew there was something here for me to understand
4: yeah and um uh you know that. That ability, yeah, that, there definitely has to be that second phase where you fall in love with one You fell in love. You knew it when you thought. I did.
3: I did. And you, now, what yeah. do you do? How do you and your thinking then put together the, the fact that I then brought this book up at just the right time to uh, facilitate uh, my uh, getting into a residency program?
4: Um, you know... I who knows you know you probably were talking about that book a lot at the time if you were excited about it so there may I, have been I was out.
3: not I was not they
4: weren't.
3: They, they weren't think, they weren't interested yeah. in that on Hate Street in the late sixties they were not interested in that uh, that wasn't the thing that we were talking about it was more yeah. like tarot, tarot cards and astrology uh, not not George Kelly
4: um yeah I I don't know I mean you could I, have sensed something about him that told that's what
3: you. that's my, my favorite possibility is that I scanned his bookshelf and saw the book on there, which seems oh, yeah. like this, that's a guess. I, I had my glasses off, so I probably didn't, couldn't have seen it, but some intuitive thing yes. sitting there had me say George Kelly to him rather than Sigmund Freud or somebody else that I knew. And that, that's that's the mystery that I look at is how that how that happened, and because you don't because we may differ in how we understand these things. I'm very interested in how you would explain how I brought that up at this time after having been in my mind for for several years.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that we can err on the side of thinking things that are coincidence because. Um, we discount just how much many random things happen and we pay attention to the ones yep. that seem significant, but there's, you know, thousands of more times where you didn't make a connection. Right. And so we tend to just look at the ones where something turned out in an interesting way or looked like a coincidence. I yes. I would say, you know, that's a way of not seeing how many non-coincidences you know mostly life is non-coincidences um
3: well one of the fun things about being where i am is noticing that that the two major explanations for coincidences is the one that you're saying, which which is in a large population, lots of weird things can happen and they're always happening, but we don't we only pay attention to a few. Uh, David Spiegelhalter was on the show last week, and it was really fun seeing how he thought. And on the other end, the ones who say it's the universe that is doing it, or mystery, or God, and I'm looking at more um, uh, conventional ways of thinking, adding some extra stuff. That that might include telepathy and heightened intuitive capacities to explain some of these things. Because I, we are in, we are doing this ourselves. I, I believe we are part of these coincidence creations. But I'm not going to try to... That, that's I just wanted to mention how I think about these things.
4: Yeah. I think I think about it more out of the lens of scientific research, which is yeah. Um, in order to have big discoveries in science, we have to spend huge amounts of money to let people do things that seem completely useless like <laughs> and and like an enormous amount of totally useless things have to happen you know a lot of people have to cut up worms and find nothing or look at soil and find nothing much there you know or nothing that seems to be um you know find exactly what we'd expect there or You know, and and so we have all these people all over the world. And we're spending billions of dollars on having people observe things. And then, you know, one out of every thousand of those people is going to just because of they happen to be putting their lens in the right place. They're going to find something that we absolutely didn't expect that turns out to be hugely significant and changes everything
3: beautiful description beautiful description
4: i would say you know can you make that cheaper faster better (laughs) how do you do that you get better tools so when we got you know when the world got microscopes all of a sudden people were able to see these tiny microbes that had been invisible and you had Waves of scientific discoveries yeah. out of that, or a telescope. You know, yeah. before the telescope, there was just only so much you could know. You give uh, a thousand people around the world a telescope, and you're going to have a wave of discovery because you have all these people who are na- now able to see things. So, I think you know, tools that heighten our power to observe the world and see things that were invisible. Are really exciting and are the you know are kind of another method to these you would call them serendipity. I would I think I would just call them discoveries.
3: We've we come to the end of this yeah. segment. That's beautiful description. Uh, you're listening to C- connecting with coincidence with your host Dr. Bernie Biteman MD on the Exon Broadcast Network and our guest is Pagan Kennedy.
0: yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
3: Welcome. Welcome back to CC with BB. Our guest today is Pagan Kennedy, and we just got a good look at how Pagan thinks about scientific discoveries, enhanced by new technological inventions. One of, the, one of the other points I've seen you uh, wonder about uh, comes from a, a paper entitled the, On the Exploitation of Serendipity in Drug Discovery. And they, they were puzzling over the reasons uh, that in the 1950s and 60s, there was a bonanza of breakthroughs in psychiatric medications, and that run of serendipity has ended. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm interested, really, to know uh, why you think that happened
4: yeah that is so interesting you know we had these major actually so many of the major blockbuster drugs were discovered at mid-century in the 20th century and this was a time like kind of we were talking about penicillin and all the um the antibiotics and then there were all the major psychiatric drugs um were discovered Many of them were discovered in the mid to late 20th century. Right. And things have really started to dry up. Oh, yeah. And around the time. So what changed? Well, a lot of those discoveries were happening when people were just randomly. First of all, you had people who were doctors were spending a lot more time with patients. So they were observing patients and they weren't trying to necessarily discovered drugs, but they were spending a lot of time with patients who had weird symptoms. And then you'd say, well, what, you know, what happened? Well, they took, maybe they took a drug for some other condition and it changed their uh, mental outlook or it changed their, phys- something that happened to them physically. So there was- well, but, be-
3: That was true the tubercular drug. And it was a research project that, and they were using iproniazid uh, as an anti-tubercular drug and the patients got happy. And then it became uh, a, a, something that looked in more deeply and it became uh, a monoamine uh, uh, oxidase inhibitor. And that set the stage for one form of antibiotic, of, of antidepressant.
4: Yeah, that's very well put. So you might say, you know, so the, that old method was just, we, have, we just have a lot of doctors observing things and trying random things Trying random compounds on yeah. people with no yeah. plan. <laughs>
3: That's right. And we'll,
4: we'll just see what well, happens. We'll
3: see if it works. We'll see if it works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. having
4: and, no idea about what might work, but just sort of trying, you know, ra- just complete randomness, and then observing what happens. Yeah. And so it was all kind of at right. what you might call accidental. You know, when it did work, you'd say, "Hey, what what was that?" and figure it out. And then, then the whole Because that's super expensive, we move. you know, there were a lot of people who wanted to move to um, what they called, you know, rational drug design or, um, you know, real figuring out, um, trying to figure out, well, this, this you know, this part, this, say, receptor in the brain looks like this and what molecule would fit. So they're trying to figure it out (laughs)
3: rationally. And that's oh, yeah.
4: when drug discovery <laughs> fell off the cliff. And so you've got to start to think that actually just observing and, you know, as expensive and annoying as this process might be, kind of the what we might call the accidental um, method may work a lot better. And and there may be new ways that we can speed that up with
3: I think I think it's you compared, I think you you're really making the describing a transition from like at least occasional encounterers to the non-encounterers who had blinders on and just had to try to see this rational way of doing things.
4: Yeah, and you can see where they're coming from because you know, when you're going to say we're going to spend a billion dollars on research and then you have to explain this to your boss and then you tell your boss, well, we're just going to do a whole bunch of random things. <laughs> We're going to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. You know that's not popular in corporate America because it just doesn't sound good. Even if it it's more effective, people are very nervous about that. Um, and the,
3: the Serendipity yeah. Society, uh, which is uh, fairly new and it's to me mostly European but also U.S. Serendipity Society um, is and uh, Samantha Copeland's going to be on in a couple of weeks, who's the, co- the co-director, the uh, co-chair of this, is trying to be able to establish the circumstances under which serendipity is more likely to occur. What do you think of that?
4: Yeah, yeah I think it's, uh, well, I think the in science and discovery, I think the conditions are, there are certain things, there are certain discoveries you can you can where you can see the problem and come up with a solution but there are certain times where the solution you won't even know that the problem exists because the solution is so out there it's so weird and the opportunity is so weird that we're not even aware of the problem so an example would be laser technology There was this guy named, I believe his name was Charles Towns in around the 1950s, and he came up with this idea of creating a beam of electrons, you know, laser beam that would burn holes in things. And, you know, his colleagues were, like, were making fun of him and saying, oh, like, you managed to, like, you know, what, what does this thing do? This is the most useless thing I've ever seen. Because before we had lasers, we wouldn't think, oh, you could use... A laser beam to do eye surgery or to send information you know it was you needed the or another example a really good example is artificial sweeteners because there are a lot of chemicals that you can't predict you'll take away one little piece of them and suddenly the taste will change but you can't predict that Um, so Almost every artificial sweetener has been discovered by somebody doing a lab experiment, trying to do something else, like make, say, an ulcer drug. And then they, they are eating a sandwich later, and their fingers taste sweet. And they got a little of this compound by mistake. But you couldn't have predicted that there was sweetness there.
3: And the guy um, who was, who was told by his boss to test a yes. particular sweetener, and he thought... The boss said, taste the sweetener.
4: Yes, that's my (laughs) favorite one. I think that uh, I've forgotten which sweetener that is. But almost every sweetener, I think every single artificial sweetener I could find began that way, with somebody just tasting something sweet and then going backwards. So they were not looking for artificial sweeteners. Um, And so I think there's a lot of things where, you know, people just happen on something that's a pre-existing solution, um, and then they kind of go looking for the problem to fit it, if that makes sense.
3: Oh, it does. It does. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, that's, those are the two forms of serendipity that I see you interested in, uh, the, the the one where you see a problem and you're on the ground and you know how to do something about it, the surgeons, for example, that you mentioned earlier, and then coming up with something and then seeing, well, this could be an answer to something. What, one of the phrases you use um, is using serendipity to explore the unknown unknown. Could you tell us about what you're thinking there, please?
4: Yeah, so that also gets down to you know why we have to spend so much money on science. And actually, I, I um, after I, I wrote a piece for the Times on serendipity, and after that, and during that pe- writing that piece i connected with this wonderful organization called the golden goose awards have you t- do you know no. about them no i don't and they advocate for serendipity in science aka spending a lot of money on science because um, their whole um, what they're trying to communicate to the public is that you have to give scientists a lot of money to try things and without knowing what's going to happen. I mean, yeah. that uh-huh. is the essence of science. And the public doesn't, and their their response, there's uh, those of us who are older probably know about the Golden Fleece Awards, which were <laughs> um, a Republican conservative senator came up with this um, this idea in the 70s, I think. What he would hand it out to... Uh, discredit science and say, oh, well, we gave you guys a million dollars and all you did was study the sex life of boll weevils. And this was to make fun of science um, and to try and defund it. But of course, if you're studying the sex lives of boll weevils, you're figuring out how to protect the cotton crop. Yeah. So it is very valuable. It's just you can make you can make this whole endeavor sound ridiculous and worthless, you know, if you want to very easily. So that's why the Golden Fleece Awards. Um, I'm sorry, the Golden Goose Awards. They'll give awards to scientists who made serendipitous discoveries. So oh, I
3: would, that's what they do. Okay. You know,
4: probably two thirds of the Nobel laureates out there would qualify for a Golden Goose Award. Because they did something that they had an accidental discovery or they had some major moment of serendipity where they saw something and fell in love with it. And it didn't really make sense. And they followed up on it. Um, so, um, you know, well, we're,
3: there's... We're coming... Yeah. This, this, we're coming to the end of uh, of our program here, and what I come away with is that if we're going to fund science, we want to have super encounterers doing the work that you just described.
4: Yes, and lot and lots of money. And lots. It's very expensive, and we need to fund science heavily in order to get discoveries. Yes.
3: Okay, Th- Pegan. Thank <laughs> you very very much for for talking with me today. It's it's been a delight.
4: Okay. Thank you so much.
3: You're listening to Connecting with Coincidence with your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And our guest has been Kagan Kennedy and Serendipity.